1: I
2: want to be alone. Where have you been? I suppose I can cancel the Vienna contract?
1: I just want to be alone.
2: You're going to be very much alone, my dear madame. This is the end.
3: For five days in November, in the year 1990, thousands of people streamed into Sotheby's auction house on York Street and 72nd Street to view the possessions of a mysterious lady who had lived just one mile south of here, next to the residential enclave Beekman Place. The objects on display ranged from important paintings by great Impressionist masters to old wooden furniture and a strange array of porcelains, including a perfume bottle in the shape of a wizard. This was no ordinary estate sale, for the deceased owner of these objects was no ordinary woman. They had belonged to Hollywood royalty. The goddess of the silver screen, Greta Garbo, who had an apartment in New York for almost four decades. Hundreds of fans streamed in to Marvel at the movie star's unique possessions. Many had no living memory of seeing a Garbo premiere, for her last film had flickered onto screens back in 1941. They only knew her from seeing glimpses upon the streets of New York a common fixture of Manhattan's East Side, so famous for being recognized that she became the ultimate New York celebrity sighting. Devotees swapped stories of Garbo sightings. Two sisters regaled listeners with stories of 40 different sightings, including the time they stalked the movie star into Central Park. An unusual fate for a woman whose most famous line was, I want to be alone. Back in her east side apartment sat boxes and wardrobe bags, which told a different story about Greta Garbo. Not film memorabilia, but the remnants of a strange and interesting life. Glamorous, unworn evening dresses made by a most bitter rival. An unusual whale tooth gifted from John F. Kennedy. A collection of wooden gnome dolls and still home in the living room, once by the Renoirs and the Yavlenskys, sat an inflatable plastic snowman, all a part of Greta Garbo's New York. The Bowery Boys episode 420, Garbo Walks Old Hollywood in New York. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And for my last solo show of the year, I wanted to look at a more abstract aspect of life in New York City, the street and the sidewalk. Most of the time, we're speeding along with the rest of the other New Yorkers, never soaking in the extraordinary city surrounding us. But for a very select few of us, city walking is a ritual of serenity. Nothing clears your head quite like a long walk along the waterfront or through Central Park or just weaving a meandering path through a neighborhood unknown to you. In 1951, author Alfred Kazin, a prolific stroller, wrote the book A Walker in the City about his experiences of taking in city life through regular long walks. Quote, I have made a point of entering into a personal journal, my daily experiences of city life, reflecting the passion of a lifetime. Watching New York, taking it all in as one walked about, recognizing at every step that one was privileged to be moving on one of the central stages of the modern world. In 1953, two years after Kazin's book was published, a woman who would become known as perhaps New York City's most famous walker, moved into an apartment tower on the east side of Manhattan. This was Greta Garbo, one of the greatest actors of the early Hollywood screen, a nearly mythic film presence who had not made a movie in over 10 years by the time she unpacked her things in a new apartment near Beekman Place, her view overlooking the East River. Garbo did things differently than other actors. She was indifferent to the spotlight and committed to living as she saw fit. Garbo lived on 52nd Street for almost half her life, and her two favorite pastimes were collecting artwork and walking. Walking everywhere, either by herself or with a chosen companion. Showing up at your doorstep one day, asking if you'd like to join her on a jaunt to the park or down Fifth Avenue. In attempting to live her life freely, however, she opened herself up to the intrusive behavior of others. Some obsessed with her as a screen goddess, others simply gravitating to her elusive reputation. By the 1970s and surging into the 80s, Garbo signings became a popular urban scavenger hunt. You had Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, and Greta Garbo. The four-leaf clover of celebrity sightings, except they happened pretty often. Somebody once told me, actually, that you were considered a real New Yorker in the 1980s if you had seen Garbo at least once. Last year in The New Yorker, the great author Thomas Mallon published his old journal entries from the year 1985, including one about the sighting of Jackie Onassis. Quote, anyway, I ranked it just beneath my Garbo sighting. Garbo never really got used to this, exactly. And the media continued to misinterpret her reticence at being constantly followed. She was variably described as haggard, miserable, and reclusive. Newsday in 1983 described her as, quote, childless, never married, and in the winter of her life. What was this obsession all about? What drove people to scour the East Side? looking at every hunched old woman in a floppy hat and trench coat, hoping to catch a glimpse of the most legendary face in Hollywood history. Greta Garbo was 19 years old when she first came to America, arriving in New York in the summer of 1925 on the arm of director Mauritz Stiller. She was born in 1905 in Stockholm, Sweden, born Greta Gustafsson to a family of modest means. As a teenager, she became a department store hat model, which led to commercial work and then eventually small roles in Swedish silent films. Stiller was a Finnish film director who discovered Greta and cast her in the romantic film The Saga of Gosta Berling. He also gave her a new last name, Garbo. Stiller and Garbo were in New York in the summer of 1925, en route to Hollywood, per the request of Louis B. Mayer from the film studio MGM. Yet nobody from the studio was there to greet them at the port. So Moritz and Greta stayed in New York for two months, living at the Commodore Hotel, marveling at the tallest building in the world, the Woolworth Building, taking in the Ziegfeld Follies, and delighting in an afternoon in Coney Island. While waiting for word from Hollywood, young Garbo was photographed for the magazine Vanity Fair. The alluring full-page photograph by Arnold Genth would give America its first glimpse at the future movie star. Now, unfortunately for the director, it was actually Garbo that everybody wanted, In the world of Hollywood silent films, stars didn't need to speak English very well. They only needed to command the screen to evoke great emotion through dramatic expressions upon their starkly painted faces. But Garbo brought something more to such silent films as Torrent, The Mysterious Lady, and Flesh and the Devil. She brought something otherworldly, distant, and unattainable. Four years after she stepped off that ship in New York, Greta Garbo was the hottest actress in Hollywood. The press was obsessed with figuring out her allure, deciphering her screen presence as though she were a force of nature. In 1929, the Sacramento Union ran a full-page article with the headline, Explaining the Mystery of Greta Garbo. Quote, What constitutes the Swedish star's fascination? Is a beauty... Is it dress? Is it mystery? Because she does not attend Hollywood parties, because she is almost never seen in public, a legend has grown up around Garbo. The adjective mysterious follows her all around. People think of Greta Garbo as older than she is, perhaps on account of her screen roles, unquote. But when that article was written, Garbo was only 24 years old. Greta Garba was not only a great actress, she was a savvy businesswoman and a firm negotiator. She knew what she was worth, and by 1928, she was paid as much as her male co-stars. She also happened to be incredibly good with her money and lived a comfortable but not lavish lifestyle in Hollywood. But the industry she found herself in would soon face a serious crisis. In 1927, the film The Jazz Singer brought sound to the movies, quickly spilling an end to the silent film era and to the careers of many of its stars, those with great faces but inadequate voices. Garbo continued making silence as late as 1929. Her film The Kiss, which did include a synchronized orchestral score, was released a few weeks after the stock market crashed. The world was truly changing. So would Garbo make sense in a world of sound? The studio leaned into the anticipation. What did Greta Garbo sound like? Her fans would find out in the 1930 MGM film Anna Christie, based on a Eugene O'Neill play set on the New York waterfront. The studio promoted it with the slogan, Garbo Talks! The sound of her voice would be an event, and New Yorkers would first hear it at the Capitol Theater. Filmgoers walked into the theater under banners heralding, hear her talk. At last, her fans cast their eyes and ears upon Garbo, playing a fallen woman estranged from her fisherman father, garbed in a bedraggled dress. In her first spoken line, she ordered a drink. Give me a whiskey. Ginger it on the side. And don't be stingy, baby.
1: Well, shall I serve it in a pail?
3: Advertisements declared, Greta Garbo talks, and you are held spellbound. Fascinated by the rich melody of her low-pitched speaking voice. Captivated by the magnetic allure of her breathtaking beauty. Thrilled by the intensity of her dramatic acting. She had survived but so many stars had not, her date with the microphone. This publicity boosted her career even further. During the height of the Great Depression, she became one of America's most popular movie stars, and soon, she was even the highest-paid actor in Hollywood. The glittering sets and glamorous locales of her pictures proved a welcome distraction from the grueling reality of the Depression from Matahari, where she played the famous exotic World War I spy, to the all-star romp Grand Hotel, which became Garbo's biggest box office hit. It also won the Oscar for Best Picture, and also contains the line of dialogue most associated with her. I want to be alone. In 1933, she gives an extraordinary performance and offers a masterclass in screen presence in the film Queen Christina, about the 17th century Swedish monarch. She acts opposite her frequent leaning man and former lover, John Gilbert, whose career would not survive much further into the world of sound pictures. Yet, in a way, she was both a leading man and woman in the film, and her bold portrayal, seasoned with lesbian overtones, is one of the great screen performances from the bodier pre-code era of Hollywood.
4: I want for my people security and happiness. I want to cultivate the arts of peace, the arts of life. I want peace, and peace I will have.
3: Behind the scenes, she frequently collaborated with the Austrian screenwriter Salka Vertel, an outspoken social activist who helped dozens of Jewish actors escape Europe during the rise of Adolf Hitler in Germany. Vertel had written the screenplay for Queen Christina, as well as Garbo's next two films, The Painted Veil and Anna Karenina. Yet Garbo's greatest artistic triumph would come next, the 1936 Camille, based on the novel by Alexandre Dumas, regarding a courtesan caught between the wealthy Baron de Varville, played by Lionel Barrymore, and the penniless but beautiful Armand, played by Robert Taylor, all the while suffering from consumption. She puts to film the greatest coughing-into-a-handkerchief scenes ever
2: made. Perhaps your life will cure me. Nothing else seems to.
1: I believe you're sincere at least. After all, when one may not have long to live, why shouldn't one have fancies? You see, I'm not laughing anymore.
3: By this point, she was known as the most serious actress working in Hollywood, and her box office, as a result, began to slip. The world, by this point, needed a few laughs, And so, borrowing from the studio's successful Garbo Talks campaign, they now declared, Garbo laughs. Of course, she had laughed in a lot of her movies, but in the 1939 comedy, Ninochka, the laughs were front and center, as Garbo played an overly serious Russian special envoy.
2: What's that? It's a
4: hat, comrade. A woman's hat. How can such a civilization survive, which permits their
1: women to put things like that on their heads? Won't be long now,
3: comrades. The film was a raging success. Garbo was nominated for an Oscar. And if this worked, why not another? And so in the 1941 film, Two-Faced Woman, Garbo laughs again. And she dances. The rumba. In an ill-conceived attempt to Americanize her image. Playing a ski instructor and her fake twin sister. Don't ask. You don't need to see this one. One week after its theatrical release, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, leading to the United States' entrance into World War II. Garbo's considerable international appeal had now evaporated, and American audiences didn't seem very interested in European actors. Moviegoers now wanted Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. And so Two-Faced Woman, released in 1941, became Greta Garbo's final film. Her contract with MGM was terminated. She never officially retired, but she could never find another suitable project. In the late 1920s, critics described her as un-American, which was a compliment at the time, highlighting her exotic screen presence. But by the 1940s, that no longer sold. Throughout the decade, tired of the spotlight, of the constant reminders of failure that surrounded her in Hollywood, Garbo would start spending more time in New York, living out of hotels and friends' Park Avenue apartments. Even at this moment, a glimpse of the actress seemed to captivate people. From the 1946 Manhattan Moods column in the Buffalo News, quote, Often Park Avenue pedestrians note a woman walking along alone, generally with her face concealed. The turning of heads is due to the fact that there is something familiar about her. There should be, since her name is Greta Garbo, and it wasn't so long ago that she was among the movie greats. And thus begins the star's longest-running performance. As a ghost from the past, perpetually hounded, shadowed, and stalked for the rest of her life. In 1951, Greta Garbo became a naturalized citizen of the United States, and then two years later, she purchased an apartment on Manhattan's east side and prepared for a new chapter in her life— But her admirers would not allow her to escape her past so easily. We'll get to Greta Garbo in New York after this.
4: Listen to the New York Historical Society's podcast, For the Ages, hosted by David M. Rubenstein— engaging the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversations on a wide range of
3: topics on the people who have shaped America. Although Jimmy Carter left the White House in January of 1981, his career in public service was far from over. Listen to the Unfinished Presidency, Jimmy Carter's journey beyond the White House, as award-winning historian Douglas Brinkley explores the lessons of Carter's life and legacy.
4: Then, in Beyond the White House, Brinkley joins David M. Rubenstein to look at the post-presidential lives of the Commander-in-Chief, some establishing presidential libraries, and others playing a powerful role in foreign policy.
3: And in the harsh New England winter of 1692, a minister's daughter began to scream and convulse as if possessed by a demonic spirit. This incident marked the beginning of a year-long panic in Salem, Massachusetts. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Stacey Schiff uncovers the origins of this phenomenon in The Witches, Salem, 1692. Get For the Ages wherever you get your podcasts. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC, to listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC.
0: Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee Governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen posed that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories Stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta.
3: Beekman Place is a two-block north-south street from East 49th to 51st perched upon a high point along the east side of Manhattan with a most exclusive pedigree built upon the site of the old Beekman family estate. Now, in the 1860s, this street was created and then lined with beautiful brownstones, originally intended as a wealthy enclave. However, the encroachment of industry along the waterfront reduced the site's desirability among the Gilded Age set. However, inspired by the development of another pocket enclave, Sutton Place, a few blocks north, by the 1930s, Beekman Place again became an upscale apartment district, one might even say gentrified, populated still today with elegant townhouses and apartment towers. Among the street's most famous residents were Irving Berlin, Cole Porter, Peggy Guggenheim, and at one Beekman Place, the fictional Glamour Gal, Anti-mame. When the FDR Drive was put up along the east side, the enclave was then closed off from the waterfront, granting its residents even more privacy. Greta Garbo moved in just one block north of here, into the Campanile at East 52nd Street, a building constructed in 1927. Designed with a gorgeous Art Deco twist on Venetian Gothic, the Campanile had 16 floors and 16 apartments, well-situated to appeal to rich people who liked their privacy. Early residents here included Ralph Pulitzer, grandson of Joseph, John Hertz of the Hertz car rentals, the former Madeleine Force Astor, widow of John Jacob Astor IV, who died on the Titanic, and the viciously genius critic from the New Yorker magazine, Alexander Wolcott, one of the tentpole figures of the Algonquin Round Table. In fact, Dorothy Parker thought Wolcott's apartment here so far east that she gave it another nickname Wits End. Later on, when he moved out, Noel Coward moved in. Greta Garbo became a resident of the Campanile in 1953, and this choice of residence certainly had something to do with a famous couple who already lived here, the glamorous fashion designer Valentina and her husband, George Slee. The Schlees were the toast of New York's cafe society, the well-dressed elites who haunted the elegant nightclubs of the 1930s and 40s. Valentina born Valentina Nikolivna Sanina in today's Ukraine, met the financier George Slee while fleeing the country during the Russian Revolution. In 1928, Valentina opened a boutique on Madison Avenue and was soon known as the most in-demand designer in New York, enrobing society women and actresses alike in breathtaking gowns. In 1942, Garbo came in for her first gown fitting and instantly became friends with Valentina and her husband, whom she seemed to fancy even more. To quote from Robert Gottlieb's recent biography on Garbo, At first, the Schles and Garbo were a public threesome, sometimes with George walking in the middle and the two women wearing identical Valentina gowns, unquote. George became rather consumed by Garbo's presence and soon took over many of her financial and professional affairs. The Schlees already lived at the Campanile on the ninth floor. Noel Coward later wrote, Drinks with Valentina, who bared her soul over George and Garbo. Poor dear, I'm afraid she's having a dreary time. However, in 1953, when Garbo moved onto the fifth floor, the Schlees not only facilitated the move, Valentina even helped design the apartment. In Garbo's spacious closet were several Valentina gowns, which over time, Garbo wore less and less, and soon, not at all. Whatever personal arrangements the Schlees had with Garbo is their business. And we can never really know. But their story will culminate in a tragic incident and will cause great personal unease for Garbo until the very end of her life. Garbo's legacy might have been projected in black and white, but her living quarters were in full vivid color, from the bright, almost garish geometric rugs which adorned the floor in the 1960s, to the wild variation of artwork, an explosion of salmons and greens that felt nothing like the abode of a silent film star. According to interior decorator Billy Baldwin, quote, The bedroom, which overlooked the East River, was a nice square room, waiting for its background. Miss G picked up a small candle shade of sheared mulberry-colored silk and held it up for us to see. This shade, she said, was on a candle in a dining car in Sweden, in the first train I was ever on. Then she lit a candle and held it beneath the shade, our job was to paint the room the color that resulted from the candlelight shining through the silk, unquote. Yet Garba was also known as being good with her money, even frugal on some matters. Her only real extravagance was in the pursuit of art for her walls. And that pursuit may have inspired her first true walks throughout the neighborhood to the art galleries of Madison Avenue and the antique shops of 3rd Avenue. Soon these trips became a regular routine, once in the morning, then another in the afternoon, and her routes eventually extended as far north as Washington Heights and as far south as Washington Square Park wearing dark glasses or a headscarf, and sometimes a trench coat in the fall and winter. Why did this simple private act create such a commotion? Why in a city of millions with hundreds, thousands of famous individuals, did sightings of Garbo become so sought after and written about? After all, she lived near so many other famous people. Catherine Hepburn lived just a few blocks away on East 49th Street. Garbo would sometimes stop in unannounced for a visit, as one does. For many years, Joan Crawford, Garbo's co-star from the film Grand Hotel, lived up at the Imperial House on East 69th Street. Garbo paid her no such visits. But these women were still working actresses at this time. They they still promoted projects and granted interviews. Garbo shunned all of that, shunned that lifestyle. But at a time when the landscape of celebrity culture was changing. Even during her heyday, writers like Walter Winchell and Hedda Hopper spread gossip through their newspaper columns. But their pens turned more poisonous ...toward suspected communists in Hollywood during the 1940s and 50s. And after the elimination of the Hollywood studio system in 1948, the floodgates of celebrity gossip opened wider, becoming a lot more cynical and nasty. In 1952, just one year before Garbo moved into her new apartment... The publisher Robert Harrison began his magazine called Confidential, a groundbreaking moment for sleaze journalism. It fed upon the prurient desire to see the dark side of celebrity life. Now the personal lives of celebrities, once carefully controlled by the studios, could now be exposed, their hidden secrets laid bare. The magazine was actually located on Broadway and East 53rd Street, And its influence would corrode the barriers of privacy for celebrities who mostly lived in major cities. And even worse for those who lived in New York, where people, of course, could walk many places. Now, while Confidential would turn its sights on current in-demand celebrities, in 1953, for instance, they exposed the sordid secrets of Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio, The magazine would popularize a need to see the downsides of fame. The actresses without makeup, the cracks in the mirror, the faded glamour of the formerly famous. And that, unfortunately, is what Garbo would encounter. Over time, she would be hounded by onlookers eager to see a fallen movie star. An AP writer described her as, quote, "...a lonely beauty." Who is the screen's leading legend, but today is almost a phantom? Adding to the press's animosity of her was the fact that she never signed autographs and would mostly run away when fans pursued her on the street. Sure, she could have spent all day regaling fans of stories from old Hollywood and taking photographs, but when does it end? Eventually, her casual, dressed-down appearance became the recognizable version of her. And yet, she never stopped living her life, although she preferred having a steady stream of companions next to her, as much for the company as for the protection. She made one of her many appearances in Walter Winchell's column on November 3, 1963. Quote, Greta Garba was back from Europe striding along Lexington Avenue without her famous floppy hat disguise. Just 10 days later, on November 13th, Garbo, along with Valentina and George Slee, were actually invited to the White House for dinner with President John F. Kennedy and his wife, Jackie. After a lovely time, Garbo got a tour of the White House. Then Kennedy, who was transfixed by her, did something kind of odd. He gave her a gift, a decorated scrimshaw or whale's tooth as a memento. A few days later, on November 18th, Garbo sent a thank you letter to Jackie. I shall forever cherish the memory of you, the president, and the evening. Signed, Greta Garbo. Four days later, John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas a national tragedy that emphasized the dangers of living so fully within the public eye. Jackie would eventually make her home on the Upper East Side, staying there even after the death of her second husband, Aristotle Onassis. Jackie as well faced the relentless attention of the public and dogged photographers, which would stalk her as she walked through the city. These two icons would often be compared. From the New York Times, 1976, Jacqueline Onassis remained sphinx-like, Garbo-like, our most tantalizing, most exasperating celebrity, Unlike Jackie, however, Garbo had no Secret Service detail. In fact, despite her wealth, she had no security, only an occasional walking companion through the streets of New York. And yet, still, through it all, she kept walking. Coming up next, the Sphinx is rediscovered.
0: Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen posed that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country— including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta.
1: I'm the greatest star. I am by far. But no one knows
3: it. This is what it was like for Greta Garbo to go to the theater. The show was Funny Girl. The star, Barbara Streisand. In the words of film producer William Fry. I had been given producer Ray Stark's house seats for a matinee of Funny Girl, starring Barbara Streisand, and I invited Garbo. To my surprise, she accepted. I hired a car, and we drove to the Winter Garden Theater on 50th Street and Broadway. Ray had alerted the manager that we were coming, so we were ushered to our seats just as the house lights dimmed. We both enjoyed the first act immensely, and when the curtain came down for intermission, I said... Are we just going to sit here? Please, we mustn't move, she whispered urgently. I had been with Garbo often, but always in the privacy of my house or at the homes of friends. At the Winter Garden, I learned what her celebrity cost her in the world outside. Just minutes into the intermission, people realized that Garbo was in their midst, an audible buzz began to surround us. People walked down the aisle and crossed to the row in front of us, staring and talking and pointing. Trapped in a crowd soon numbering about 50, Garbo panicked. The moment the lights went down, she wanted to leave. We're not leaving, I said. The car won't be here, and I don't know if we can get a taxi. Just enjoy the show, and before the curtain comes down, we'll run up the aisle and get out. But Garbo liked the second act even more than the first, and when the curtain did come down, I couldn't get her out of her seat. She applauded and applauded, and didn't seem to mind that the aisles were again jammed with people gawking at her. When we got to the street, the car was waiting. I put Garbo in the back seat behind the driver, but before I could get around to the other side, a woman opened Garbo's door and tried to climb in. I had to shove the woman forcefully out of the car. As we drove away, I realized I was exhausted. I'd been in public with any number of stars, including Tulula Bankhead, Betty Davis, Rosalind Russell, and Joan Crawford, but I'd never witnessed anything approaching the frenzy that we had just gone through. Why did she do it? Garba, why... Why did she continue to live in New York City? Why did she continue these daily walks, knowing she would have three, four, maybe more encounters with the public that she obviously found troubling? She was shy, often curt, not really very talkative, and not exactly tolerant of other people's nonsense. Today, we might look a bit more charitably upon her social demeanor, and I think we would all agree that she deserved her privacy, but you do wonder about the calculations that she made over the years as she got older. The love of her solitude at the Campanile, the joy of her walks, even with interruptions, her companions, her collections. These things made New York City worthwhile to her, even though she couldn't really go to the theater that much anymore or to the movies without upstaging the entertainment with her presence. Of course, it also helped that she did leave New York three months out of the year, occasionally nearby, like the time she went to the Pines, one of the gay districts on Fire Island, where she was considered a gay icon. An all-male version of Camille was actually filmed on Fire Island in the 1950s, okay? So when she made an appearance one day on the beach, according to her biographer, Barry Paris, quote, a gay crowd on the periphery chorused, I want to be alone. But mostly, she went to more exotic foreign locales in Sweden, Switzerland, and France. On October 3rd, 1964, Garba was in Paris with George Slee. Their relationship, some intense mix of professional and personal, had intensified, and they began going places without Valentina. Most likely, this was not truly romantic, but whatever it was, Valentina was on the outside. In the eighth arrondissement, they lavishly dined, and then they returned to the hotel in the Place de la Concorde. Suddenly, George collapsed from a heart attack. He died later that evening. Garbo, however, petrified of the attention, essentially disappeared and was of no help to Valentina, who flew to Paris to collect her husband's body. Whatever the real story behind Garbo's irresponsible actions, they were the final straw for Valentina. For the rest of their lives, the two would remain estranged, never speaking. Valentina even called an orthodox priest to exorcise all traces of Garbo's presence from her apartment. Through the Campanile's building staff, the women concocted an elaborate schedule so that they would never, ever see one another. From that moment on, Garbo was always back home from her walks by 5.30 p.m., for Valentina always went out at 6. Many observers compared their warlike feud to that in a Hollywood film that Garbo herself might have starred in. Quoting from Barry Paris's biography on Garbo, this particular recluse had chosen to make her home on a crowded urban island. In part, of course, for the anonymity of the crowd. Perhaps she needed the hubbub. She was so innervated herself that she required the energy of others. In New York, one could live vicariously through the activity all around. But there was a more practical reason why she stayed in New York, at least in Sam Green's opinion, quote, New York is the only place where you can go out and get food anytime and bring it back, unquote. Garbo gets takeout. The art curator, Sam Green, was one of her many walking companions over the years into the 1980s. She had grown increasingly paranoid, and for good reason— Many confidants had betrayed her trust over the years. The socialite and writer Mercedes D'Acosta may or may not have been Garbo's lover during the 1930s and 40s. When D'Acosta published her memoir in 1960, spilling all sorts of personal secrets, she was cut entirely from Garbo's life. In the 1950s and 60s, Garbo became romantic with photographer and film designer Cecil Beaton. When he published his diaries in the early 1970s, Garbo considered it, quote, an atomic bomb of betrayal. And now, here she was with the young Sam Green, who strolled the street with her for many years. Green later said, quote, We developed a little language of our own on those walks and played childish games like kick the can and imitate the passerby. Once she said, I haven't had a laugh like this in years, But when she suspected that Sam was leaking secrets about her to the press, their frequent walks stopped. Another walking companion was Raymond Daum, who Garbo met while he was working at the United Nations headquarters just a few blocks down from her apartment. He, too, would write a book about her called Walking with Garbo. But at least he had the good sense to do it after her death. Their walks were epic, frequently punctuated by fans, of course, demanding autographs. Down was very used to waving them away, and he notes that they even had a few rules. Don't ever ask me about the movies, she once cautioned me, and especially why I left them. It's incredible to think of Garbo on the streets of New York City in the 1970s, the years of bankruptcy Studio 54, Taxi Driver, Abe Beam, and Ed Koch. And it's difficult to even imagine her going to the movie theaters in the 1980s, which she often did, sneaking into the back seats at the Plaza Theater at 58th Street, where she could watch a film uninterrupted. Even though modern movies, Top Gun, Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, were a world away from movies like Camille and Inochka, Even in this environment, she continued to be recognized. By this time, it was a badge for New Yorkers to log at least one Garbo sighting in your life. And a new generation was discovering her pictures thanks to the prominence of film study programs, repertory houses like the Film Forum, and special tributes of her work at museums like the Museum of Modern Art, which hosted their first retrospective of Garbo's work in 1968. Another tribute in 1984, to celebrities such as Halston, former mayor John Lindsay, and the filmmaker Sidney Lumet, who had just made a film about a search for Greta Garbo called Garbo Talks. They were all there, all of her films were there, but there was no actual Garbo there. In 1985, she turned 80 years old with celebrations in both New York and Stockholm, and the following year, she received a Medal of Honor from the Swedish government in a ceremony on the Upper East Side. But all this rediscovery also meant being tormented by an even more aggressive paparazzi, including photographers Ron Galella, infamous for tormenting Jackie O, and Ted Lazen, who generally today we might think of as Garbo's stalker. Quote, "what i like is that no other photographer is following her as intensely as i," he said with pride. "i always say this might be my last picture of greta because she is so old." as she got older and sicker, garba was seen with fewer companions and she took fewer walks. But within her bright, colorful apartment, she often welcomed her niece, Gray Ricefield, and her niece's children, who you might be surprised to find out the aging star took a great liking to. Eventually, a new addition to her apartment's decor sat near the Renoir, an inflatable plastic snowman in a top hat, a running joke between her and her grandniece and nephews. And beneath the cushions of her expensive French sofa, she always hid little wooden trolls and gnomes for the children's discovery. More than a few adults made note of these as well. On September 14th, 1989, her neighbor and rival, Valentina, died in her apartment, age 90. The fashion world had lost an icon, but Greta Garbo was free. Unfortunately, though, There were no more long walks for her. She began taking limousines to the Rogerson Institute three days a week for dialysis treatments. The press should have allowed her in these moments her total privacy. And yet still, even in her final months, Layson and other photographers would continue to stalk East 52nd Street. In fact, when Garbo would leave her apartment for the final time, On April 11, 1990, Leighton was waiting outside and then took the final photographs of Greta Garbo. She died four days later on Easter Sunday, April 15, 1990. Perhaps no other person can be so whittled down to objects and collectibles more than a movie star with admirers the world over thrilled at owning even the smallest, most trivial of possessions. And so, the world of Greta Garbo was parceled out. In November of 1990, just a few months after her death, her most valuable possessions were sold at Sotheby's. Her paintings, furniture, and rugs. The most curious item was a 15-inch scent bottle in the shape of a wizard, looking more like a souvenir from Disney World. It sold for $18,000. The New York Times ran with the headline, The Things With Which She Was Alone. In 2012, an additional group of objects went to auction, things that were much less valuable from an investor's perspective, but more treasured by Garbo fans. The collection of gnomes and trolls, which she had kept under the seat cushions, went for $2,000. That inflatable snowman went for $1,900. Following her quiet memorial at Frank Campbell's funeral home on the Upper East Side, even her remains sat around until 1999 when she was finally buried in a cemetery in Stockholm the tombstone bearing the possession she so rarely gave to her fans on the streets of New York. Her autograph.
1: Nanine, 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 get the doctor quickly. Doctor,
0: if you can't make me live,
1: how can he? No, no, don't say such things, Marguerite. you live, you must live.
2: Perhaps it's better If I live in your heart, where the world can't see me, if I'm dead, there'll be no stain on our love.
1: Think such things, Marguerite. Even if we can't go to the country today, think of how happy we were once, how happy we shall be again. Think of the day you found the four-leaf clover and of all the good luck it's going to bring us. Think of the vows we heard Nishet and Gustave make that we're going to make to each other. This is for life, Marguerite. Marguerite.
4: Marguerite. Now, don't leave
2: me. Marguerite, come back.
4: Come back.
3: Visit the website, Barryboyshistory.com to explore some images of things mentioned on this show, by which I mean, of course, photographs of Garbo on the streets of New York. Now, did you ever see Greta Garbo when she was alive? If you did, share your stories in the comments section of that posting. I want to thank everybody who came out to our live shows at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater in October, for Halloween, they were a runaway success, perhaps the best ever, I think. In this week's episode of Side Streets, the Barry Boys Patreon-only podcast will tell you a little bit more about how it all transpired. Patrons will, will also get a recording of our Halloween show in their feeds, and that's for patrons only. Get that and more by joining us at patreon.com slash And if you're a fan of the Gilded Age, both the historical period and the TV show, check out the latest episode of the Gilded Gentleman podcast hosted by Carl Raymond. He's going weekly for the next few weeks, and in the newest shows, he speaks to Professor Carla Peterson about the black elite of the late 19th century and to food historian Becky Diamond to explore the Gilded Age cookbook, a very lovely show, I must say, for the holiday season. Well, Tom is back next episode, and um, we're going actually to the 18th century. Hope you enjoy that one. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not.
4: Hey, everyone. This is Tom. Just a quick note that season two of HBO's series The Gilded Age is now live on Max, and that means... So is the official Gilded Age podcast, which I'm hosting, along with Alicia Malone from Turner Classic Movies. Every week, we dig deep into the drama and the history behind what you see on your screen. If you like the Bowery Boys, the Gilded Age TV show and podcast is made for you. Listen to HBO's The Official Gilded Age podcast on Macs or wherever you get your podcasts.